to bring their dispute with the Iranian government on the subject of the termination of the uh, Anglo-Iranian oil companies. Uh, Throughout this night in Washington, officials will continue their search for some way to negotiate the hostages' peace. is the first movie from Iran to win the Academy Award for... The game, some said, would never take place. Here it is unfolding with real drama, and it's Iran, five minutes before half Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Iran 1400 podcast. Today's episode will feature the audio from an October 1st Spotlighting an Author event with historian Dr. Annie Tracy Samuel. Dr. Tracy Samuel will be discussing her new book, The Unfinished History of the Iran-Iraq War. Faith, Firepower, and Iran's Revolutionary Guards. The podcast will contain her 30-minute presentation, followed by a 45-minute Q&A with the audience. We hope you enjoy. Well, thank you so much uh, to the Iran 1400 project for for hosting me today and also for for such that such a warm welcome. I'd also like to thank uh, Cambridge University Press for working on the publication of the book and also for providing discount to the the participants today. Uh, So as you've heard today, I will be discussing my soon to be released book, which is called The Unfinished History of the Iran-Iraq War faith, firepower, and Iran's revolutionary guards. And the book analyzes how the IRGC has written the history of the Iran-Iraq war. So how it has recorded, assessed, and assigned a particular set of meanings to the conflict. Uh, The book's central questions include how and why the guards have documented and composed the history of the war, how the guards explain the course and outcome of the war, the relationship between the war and the Islamic revolution, and their own roles in prosecuting the conflict, and what the results of those inquiries reveal about the IRGC, the Iran-Iraq war, and the Islamic Republic. The IRGC is the military and political organization that is charged with guarding the Islamic Republic and the revolution that brought it to power. On April 22nd, 1979, which was about three weeks after a national referendum established the Islamic Republic, Ayatollah Khomeini, the revolution's leader, issued a decree directing the governing council of the revolution to establish the IRGC which effectively consolidated various revolutionary militias into a formal organization. In accordance with that decree, the council ordered the IRGC to guard the revolution against internal and external threats and to propagate the ideology of the revolution. The IRGC was then further institutionalized in the constitution of the Islamic Republic which defines the IRGC's role as guarding both Iran's national security, so its borders and territorial integrity, and the Islamic Revolution and the the Islamic Republic and the revolution that brought it to power. Now, the IRGC was not set up to replace Iran's regular military. Instead, it was to function as an additional and a revolutionary armed force. 
And that's because in the wake of the revolution, Iran's new leaders debated what form the Islamic Republic's armed forces should take. The regular military had just served the deposed Shah, and so many revolutionary leaders did not trust its loyalty to the new regime. Their distrust stemmed in part from the fact that in the first years after the revolution, significant opposition to the Islamic Republic came from within the military. They instituted a program of purges and ideological training, which helped transform what had been the imperial armed forces into the armed forces of the Islamic Republic. But that program also weakened the military and left Iran practically defenseless and did not guarantee loyalty. The IRGC was then set up in response to those circumstances, and it was designed as a force whose loyalty to the Islamic Republic would be beyond doubt, and also one that could check the power of the regular military. In the first year after the revolution, the IRGC was occupied mostly with combating internal opposition to the new regime. But with the outbreak of the Iran-Iraq war, the guards turned their attention to combating the external threat to the regime. That war began with the Iraqi invasion of Iran on September 22, 1980, which Saddam Hussein had intended to be a quick military operation to check Iran's revolutionary regime and to safeguard his rule. And then while he was at it, to seize the oil-rich territory in the southwest of Iran and assert his leadership of the Arab world. The war, however, soon transformed into a brutal and drawn-out conflict that instead revitalized the flagging revolution. After a series of victories allowed Iraqi forces to advance into Iran through early 1981, Iranian forces halted the march and retook most of their territory over the course of the next year. Iran then took the fight into Iraq in July 1982, but was unable to gain or hold much ground. As the war stalled after that, it also broadens to entangle most of the rest of the Middle East and both superpowers. It continued really as a bloody stalemate until August 20th, 1988, when a UN-backed ceasefire came into force. Uh, the end of the war restored the status quo ante, with both regimes still in power and without territorial adjustments. The war had a profound impact on Iran and the Islamic Republic. And one way we can see this is simply in the epithets that Iranians use to describe the war, which reveal pretty clearly how they understand the conflict and the nature of its significance. So in Iran, the conflict is known as the imposed war. Uh, it's seen as an attack that was undertaken by, by powers that opposed Iran's revolution and that were determined to prevent the country from asserting its independence and giving voice to its Islamic message. Therefore, the conflict was also a holy or sacred defense. It was a campaign made necessary by the imposition of war and by the need to defend both the Iranian nation and the Islamic revolution. The war had a similarly profound impact on the IRGC by transforming it into the powerful institution it has since become. 
Today, the IRGC consists of a broad collection of military, political, economic, and cultural organizations. Its members and former members hold positions throughout the government. It has units stationed throughout the country, and it has substantial influence over Iran's military doctrine and how the state defines its security and national interests. It has its own army, navy, and air force. It oversees the elite Quds force and the besieged paramilitary forces, and it plays a central role in the state's weapons programs. Uh, one of the clearest indications of the war's significance to the IRGC is the vast number of publications the organization has produced about the conflict. Now, those publications on which my book is ba are based uh, provide us with a rare opportunity to go inside the IRGC and to understand Iran's recent history as the Revolutionary Guards understand it themselves. They accordingly constitute a really valuable resource for understanding the IRGC and the Iran-Iraq War and also the Islamic Republic more broadly, uh, but one that has not been researched or written about by scholars. So then what are these IRGC publications? Uh, where do they come from and how should we understand the history that they contain? In answer to that question, the, the first point I wanna make about the IRGC's history of the Iran-Iraq war is that from the beginning of the war to the present, the Revolutionary Guard's efforts to record the history of the war and the publications that have resulted from those efforts have been organized and guided by some of the highest levels of the IRGC and by some of its founding members. So this is not an informal attempt by individual or low-ranking guards to write the history of the war in the organization's name. Uh, far from it. The project of recording and publishing the history of the Iran-Iraq War is really fundamental to the IRGC itself. And the fact that existing analyses of the war and of the IRGC have failed to consider that project uh, exposes the deficiencies in our current understandings of the organization. Now, neglect of the IRGC sources can be attributed to several factors. Uh, first, much of the existing scholarship on the Iran-Iraq war was published either during or right after the conflict, which is before many of the IRGC sources were available. Uh, second, the IRGC sources are not widely accessible, certainly not outside of Iran. Uh, there are hardly any traces of them in existing studies, so researchers have little reason to be aware of their uh, existence. Their imperceptibility is also compounded by the popular image of the IRGC as an ideological and power-hungry military that would be unlikely to invest in historical scholarship. And finally, all of the IRGC sources are in Persian, uh, which many people writing about Iran don't read. The IRGC began recording the history of the Iran-Iraq War in the spring of 1981, uh, which was just a few months into the conflict. The project was first organized by the IRGC Political Bureau, which established a war history department with the sole purpose of documenting the conflict. 
Then in March 1985, these IRGC historians formed the Center for War Studies and Research, uh, which is now known as the Holy Defense Research and Documentation Center, or HDRDC, uh, which is an independent institution under the authority first of the IRGC General Command, and then after the war of the IRGC Joint Staff. Uh, during the war, the work of documenting the conflict was carried out by a team of specially trained IRGC researchers, who are usually referred to as war narrators, who were embedded in and covered the war from the highest levels of policy and decision making to the operational commands and the front lines. Uh, one IRGC source defines the duty of the narrator as being present in their assigned region to investigate what was actually happening and to obtain precise information about the conflict in order to reach a determined conclusion about the development of the war. Now, narrators used a variety of methods to document the history of the war. They recorded activities and conversations of the commanders and policymakers whom they shadowed throughout the conflict. They conducted interviews with the actors prosecuting the war. They collected documents and they observed and recorded what they witnessed. Since the ceasefire, the HDRDC has focused both on cataloging the, the vast collection of records it gathered during the war and on publishing historical analyses of the conflict. Uh, by far the largest and most important of the center's publications is called the Chronology of the Iran-Iraq War. Uh, according to its authors, the complete series of at least 57 immense volumes will cover the nine and a half year period, uh, starting from the victory of the revolution in February, 1979, to the end of the war in August 1988. And the series is intended to be a comprehensive and documented reference work for researchers and for anyone else interested in the war. Uh, volumes of the series have been gradually published according to the 57 volume plan and have appeared out of order. Uh, as the IRGC authors state in several of those volumes, they had originally intended to publish the books according to the chronological order of the series, but they decided ultimately instead to publish each volume as soon as it was read. Uh, given the magnitude of the project, they felt that it was preferable not to delay the release of the books that had been completed. And so they designed each volume so that it could be used independently of the others. Now, in addition to the war chronology, uh, the IRGC has published several other series and monographs that analyze the war in a variety of ways. Uh, two series, the six volume survey of the Iran-Iraq war and the five volume analysis of the Iran-Iraq war are both organized chronologically and they examine the important issues and progression of the war in different periods. There are several series of atlases that focus on particular geographical regions, battles, and military divisions. Uh, there's a series called Critique and Review of the Iran-Iraq War, which includes five volumes on what the authors deem to be the critical questions of the conflict, 
such as whether it was unavoidable and why it continued for as long as it did. And this series was produced with the goal of revisiting the histories and publications on the war and addressing some of their shortcomings. And when we look at the contents of the IRGC publications, the first thing that we discover is that both the experience of the Iran-Iraq war and the project of, of composing the historical narrative of the conflict are fundamental to the IRGC and accordingly to understanding the organization. Uh, their significance stems from several factors, uh, and these include the ways in which the war and the ongoing revolutionary process in Iran influenced one another, uh, the war's role in legitimizing and institutionalizing uh, the IRGC and the new Islamic Republic as a whole, the expansion and evolution of the IRGC through its participation in the war, into the powerful organization it has since become, and the fact that the IRGC views history as a vital tool for shaping national identity and power. Uh, the IRGC histories, as we may imagine, are further distinguished by their author's proximity to the people and events that they are examining. Uh, during the war, the Revolutionary Guards assumed the roles of both the makers and recorders of history. And so what we see is that the assimilation of the IRGC narrators into the war was accompanied by the war's assimilation into them. Uh, according to one volume, the cohesive group of narrators was like a living organism that encompassed all the dimensions of the war, which were linked together as one by the extensive network of narrators. So essentially what we can see is that the IRGC narrators are portrayed as the war incarnate, as constituting a being through which the war is kept alive. Uh, it makes sense then that the development of the IRGC's documentation of the war mirrored the evolution of both the Iran-Iraq war and the IRGC as a whole, which I think helps us understand how the project emblematizes the centrality of the war to the organization's legitimacy and identity. One of the things that I found was that the IRGC authors are explicitly conscious of these parallels and of the particular circumstances that made their rules possible. Uh, the IRGC's identity as a fledgling and amorphous revolutionary organization was instrumental to its expansion and the successes it did have in the war. Uh, in part because the IRGC had few pre-established structures constraining its ability to develop and adapt. As vanguards of the revolution, the guards were acutely focused on what was unparalleled and unique about themselves. And this helped inspire the conviction that the war they were fighting was different and revolutionary and it, that it therefore needed to be preserved. Uh, the IRGC publications also reveal that the interpretation and significance of the war's history, as it's been written by the Revolutionary Guards, challenge many of the prevailing scholarly and popular characterizations of the Islamic Republic, which are often based on Western sources and perspectives. In particular, those have given much weight to the rhetoric Iranian leaders used during the war, and to the importance of faith and revolutionary fervor 
in understanding the Islamic Republic and its prosecution of the conflict. So according to that conventional wisdom, uh, for Iran generally and for the IRGC especially, the Iran-Iraq war was first and foremost a holy war, uh, one that was fought with faith alone in order to achieve religious and revolutionary ends. However, uh, the research presented in the book demonstrates that the role of faith was not that simplistic, uh, which can be seen in the way that the Revolutionary Guards construe the relationship between faith and firepower in prosecuting the war. So in this context, I'm working with, with pretty broad definitions of both faith and firepower. And I'm using faith to refer to the roles of religion, uh, revolutionary ideology, and what the guards often term Iran's spirit of resistance in fighting the war. And I'm using firepower to refer to the roles of military professionalism, tactics and strategy, and the use and importance of weapons. I've derived this concept of faith and firepower from a declaration attributed to then Majlis or Parliament Speaker Hashemi Rafsanjani, that the faith of the Islamic troops or Iranian troops is stronger than the superior firepower of Iraq's troops. What I found in much of the existing scholarship uh, is a strictly literal interpretation of that and similar statements has been used to define the way Iranian leaders viewed and prosecuted the war. Uh, according to that literature, which does not take account of the IRGC sources, Islamic fervor dictated the way the Revolutionary Guards fought the war. Uh, the Guards were incapable of viewing the conflict in military terms, and they were concerned only with faith, not at all with firepower. Uh, so in the words of one scholar, Iran constantly affirmed and came to believe the slogan articulated by Rafsanjani in 1984, that the faith of the Islamic troops is stronger than Iraq's superior firepower. As a consequence, Iran's leaders really believed that they could demonstrate the vitality of the revolution and affirm its message and validity by confronting and overcoming adversity through self-reliance. They were in no mood for lessons from the West or the professional military. Their war, like their revolution, was to be an experience unique in the annals of war, unsullied by practical considerations or constraints. Now, my analysis of the IRGC publications challenges such claims by demonstrating that the Guard's understanding of this relationship between faith and firepower is unlike and really more sophisticated than what existing studies suggest. Uh, it certainly was not based on whatever mood the Guards happened to be in. Uh, it did value professional military lessons and was very much shaped by practical considerations and constraints. Now, in fact, the guards assert that faith and firepower are complementary rather than contradictory, and that both were important in fighting the war. Uh, but this doesn't mean that the guards disagree with Rafsanjani's declaration, uh, at least not when we at least not when we refrain from interpreting it literally by presuming to know what Iranian leaders really believed or from seeing it as a statement of absolute fact in, instead of what it was, uh, which was a slogan and a battle cry and an attempt to convince Iranians to fight in a war in which they were very likely to die. Uh, I think the only way to conclude otherwise is to mistake rhetoric for reality 
uh, and to see a call to arms as a battle plan. Though Iranian military operations were certainly given names inspired by Islam and the revolution, that's not what they were really about. Uh, assessing Iran's prosecution of the Iran-Iraq war only in terms of slogans and epithets, I think reveals the cognitive dissonance that has too often characterized analysis of post-revolutionary Iran. Uh, so for example, if we can understand that Operation Desert Fox wasn't actually about chasing a fox in the desert, uh, then we should also be able to understand that Operation Jerusalem wasn't actually about forgetting Iraq and marching straight to Jerusalem. Uh, further, I think stripping Rafsanjani's statement of this falsely applied literalism allows us to use it more productively as a way to examine the relationship between faith and firepower as the Revolutionary Guards define it in their own sources. Now, one way to do that is to analyze how the Islamic Republic tried to use faith against Iraq's firepower. Uh, the IRGC sources often explore the balance between the belligerents in terms of those two factors. And they generally conclude, just like Rafsanjani did, that Iran was stronger in faith, uh, meaning their forces were more committed to the war effort and the righteousness of the fight, in part because Islamic and revolutionary ideology helped mobilize the population and give the war greater meaning. And they also conclude that Iraq was stronger in firepower. It had superior weaponry and greater access to the material it needed to prosecute the war. But the guards also acknowledged that in many cases, Iran's faith could not overcome Iraq's firepower. And they give no indication that this was an utterly surprising realization that hit them at some point in the midst of or after the war. And I don't think there's reason to conclude that Rafsanjani viewed the matter any different. Still, in other cases, faith was an effective weapon against Iraq. And this, I think, is exactly how the role of faith should be interpreted, uh, as a weapon or a tool or a means to an end. Now, of course, I, I want to state that faith is not merely a weapon or tool. And I'm certainly not arguing that religious belief wasn't or isn't incredibly meaningful for many Iranians, uh, as it is for many people. Uh, rather, my argument is that in their sources, the Revolutionary Guards often depict faith as something that could be effectively used against Iraq in the war. And that was especially true given their lack of firepower, which I think is also critical to understanding the relationship between the two. Uh, because when they relied on faith, Iranian leaders were really working with what they had. Uh, in contrast to, to the character that's often suggested in the literature uh, of Iranian officials shunning firepower in disgust because they reckoned they could win the war just fine with faith alone, uh, the guards argue throughout their sources that firepower is of utmost importance to the prosecution of any war. And so I think the most important conclusion that can be drawn about how the Revolutionary Guards discuss faith and firepower is that they pre present both as effective tools in prosecuting the Iran-Iraq war, and accordingly that utilizing both tools together was better than using just one or the other. So, for example, one IRGC volume states explicitly that
that firepower was instrumental to the Islamic Republic's war effort and was completely complementary with the use of faith. Uh, it says, one of the main factors determining the fate of wars is the amount and kind of arms in the possession of the two parties in the war. Likewise, in the Iran-Iraq war, despite the fact that Iran's strategy was based on the steadfast will and martyrdom seeking of the faithful, the role of weapons in victory and preventing losses must not be neglected. Now, an additionally significant insight that can be gained from the IRGC publications uh, is that the Revolutionary Guard's view history and the writing of history, uh, both in general and of the Iran-Iraq War in particular, as being of immense consequence. Uh, the IRGC historians actively situate themselves in a larger historical and historiographical project by seeking to engage, critique, and supplement existing literature on the Iran-Iraq War. As they do so, the guards often examine what distinguishes themselves as historians, and they emphasize that their roles in the war give their history value and authenticity. Uh, they note that in contrast to their own histories, foreign analyses make limited use of primary sources on the war and present only a basic and often flawed comprehension of Iranian society. So the value they place on primary sources and also on cultural literacy uh, demonstrates not only that the IRGC authors are well acquainted with the standards of documentation and historical methodology that are accepted in the West, but also that they measure their own history against those standards and then use them to give precedence to their own narrative. So their appraisals thus serve both to critique Western understandings of Iran and to highlight what their own publications contribute to the history of the Iran-Iraq War. And the guards further argue that history is indispensable in shaping national identity. Uh, in every country, the IRGC authors write in the very first paragraph of one source, history has an important impact on national identity and strategic orientation. Therefore, recording historical events furnishes a valuable reserve for every nation. Uh, they further specify that the historical and cultural identity of nations depends on how they operate in the course of difficult events and crises. So the history of the Iran-Iraq war therefore stands out for its profound and sustained impact on Iran's national life and identity. And one of the things that we see in the guards' histories of the conflict is that they view the war's meaning and significance as, as almost boundless, uh, as rivaling the repercussions of the Islamic revolution itself. Uh, because the war and the revolution are bound so closely together, neither one cannot be understood without the other. Uh, as the IRGC's wartime commander, Mohsen Rezaei, wrote in the forward to another IRGC volume, the Iran-Iraq war is linked closely to the Islamic revolution. So without a correct understanding of the war, it is impossible to understand the Islamic revolution. This war, because of its vast impact and outcomes, will affect every issue of internal and foreign policy, of the Islamic Republic of Iran for at least the next several decades. 
Now, their appreciation of that fact helps explain why the guards became and remain committed to writing the history of the conflict and why they assert that it must be recorded, preserved, collected, and published, and then that it must be taught and its teachings must be applied. Uh, the war, the authors of another volume affirm, uh, will remain part of the reality of Iran's history, the results and consequences of which will remain clear in the political, social, cultural, and military life of Iran. Uh, the authors go on to argue that they do not expect that to change. Uh, they say Iran will, Iran will continue to confront the legacy of the war, and the conflict will continue to have a fundamental and fateful connection to the political social life of Iran. Thus, the Revolutionary Guards are very much aware of the power and agency of history. The IRGC's assessments of the Iran-Iraq war uh, thus remind us that history must be both made and written, that the content of the past is not fixed or singular, and that it's only in the specific contents of the war's historical narrative that the meaning and permanence of the conflict will be determined. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for that fascinating presentation. As I said, I read the book, yet still the presentation taught me new things that I uh, I didn't quite comprehend that way in the first way. So, so I was still equally fascinated with your presentation as I was with the book. I wanted to begin with a question that I had, and I was curious. You went and you talked about your resources at the beginning of the presentation. But how did you personally conduct this research? Uh, did you have to read every single book on your own? And also, were any of these documents that you went through, the books that you talked to, were they hard to get a hold of or accessible? And are they accessible to the public or just researchers? Great question. Uh, so I came across the, the books in the course of, of doing uh, sort of more general research on Iran's foreign policy in this period, uh, which I was doing in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., and came across these publications, and I saw the, the IRGC logo on the spine of them, and I had been aware of the IRGC and generally what it was, and so I was surprised to, to see these huge books on the Iran-Iraq War, that seemed to be written by the Revolutionary Guards, because I, like many others, didn't think that this would be something that the IRGC would be doing. Uh, and so I, I followed that, that thread, and I began to focus increasingly on, on this, this project from the IRGC of writing the history of the Iran-Iraq War. Uh, the books themselves are not widely available. I was able to access them in the Library of Congress, which has a, a sizable collection of them. And then Harvard University also has a sizable collection of them. Uh, some of them have been available online. Uh, it, the, the website associated with the, the Holy Defense Research and Documentation Center uh, is of variable availability. 
So when it's available, it's a fantastic resource and it often does include lists of publications, news about publications, uh, even excerpts from publications. But the, the complete books themselves, uh, most of them are, are available only, only in hard copy. Uh, and so these are these are books that I, I did read myself. Uh, I was I didn't ha did not have at the time uh, or currently uh, a research assistant uh, who was helping me with that. Uh, so uh, for much of my my dissertation research, I was uh, immersed in this in this literature and and working on translating uh, and then analyzing these sources. That is very impressive that you read all of those books from the pictures that you showed of how how much information that was there that's that's impressive and very interesting thank you for sharing that our next question is is broad but i I'd, I'd love your general uh, consensus looking back on your research and conclusions what do you believe the irgc found to be their most important lessons learned from doing this research from, interesting, that is a broad question. I think from doing the research specifically, uh, I think the guards learned how important history was. And I, I continue to be really fascinated by the fact that the guards began this project so early into the conflict, just, just several months into it. And, and that recognition on their part that they should actively record what was going on uh, is really remarkable to, to me. And the, the investment that they have put into it and they continue to put into it demonstrates to me that one of the, the most important lessons that they took from this research was that it was the right thing to do and they should continue doing it. Uh, the center is still incredibly active. They are still publishing new new volumes of the chronology and of other series, and they're coming out with new series. Uh, so they they continue to in, invest in the center and to uh, advance its work, and they continue to to really publicize what they're doing even more than before, uh, which suggests to me again that that they think that this is important. Uh, and it also may reflect a, a recognition that they may not be convinced that their message is necessarily getting across to the to the Iranian population. Uh, it's of course hard to to determine the extent to which Iranians uh, take these IRGC histories as something of of interest. Uh, it's probably a safe bet to, to think that Iranians are not reading these huge histories in their spare time. Uh, but clearly the guards are invested nonetheless in, in moving this project uh, along. I think when it comes to the lessons uh, of the war itself and, and beyond the, the research that they did into the war, uh, there are several of those that, that I think are, are very important uh, and that I address in sort of the, the later chapters of the book. Uh, one is the need to ensure that Iran remains a strong defensive country and that it is prepared for a military attack against the, the country. Uh, it was very unprepared for the Iraqi invasion when it came. 
And the results of the, the war were, were really disastrous. And I think they, they say that they understand that. And they, they discuss at length the need to ensure that Iran possesses the kind of military deterrent power that will prevent certainly an invasion of the nature that they experienced in 1980 from occurring again. Uh, they also argue that maintaining independence in their defensive capabilities is critical, especially because prior to the revolution, Iran was so dependent on the United States for weapons and technology. And when the revolution occurred, they found themselves with uh, decaying uh, American weapons or you know, eventually decaying American weapons that they did not have spare parts for, that they often did not know how to operate. And so that proved to be costly to Iranians in the war. And so they have worked to ensure that, that Iran has a weapons program that is indigenous and that they themselves control. Uh, so I think there, when it comes to security and, and foreign policy, uh, there are several lessons along those lines. So I've mentioned those two, but I'll, I'll leave it there. Thank you so much. That's incredibly interesting. Uh, a good follow-up question from the chat is, the Iranian IIW books by the IRGC alone are continuing projects. So did you set for yourself a publication cutoff date? I mean, what were the newest publication dates on the books you used? The newest publication dates are as late as 2020. Uh, as uh, I was finalizing the, the process of revising the book manuscript and making sure it was as up to date as, as possible. Uh, so they span the, the period. There's a, a few publications I use from the period of the war, uh, but most of them are from the, the early 1990s up until the present. And, and the fact that the, the publications are continuing to, to come out uh, certainly intrigues me and makes me want to to continue to to track this project as it develops uh, and to to update uh, my my analysis uh, as is necessary. But I've I've certainly continued to, to keep up with their progress uh, as it happens. Thank you. Uh, the next question has the IRGC history also discussed perhaps through a critical approach, the role of the Artesh in the war and the political decision-making during the war. Another related question, in terms of the recounting of history and writing of history, does anything in particular stand out about the IRGC, which is different from other military forces of other countries? Great questions. Uh, so uh, when it comes to the Artesh, and that's uh, Iran's regular military, uh, yes, that is something that they address and is another issue that I found was not uh, uh, where the, the characterization in much of the existing scholarship fell short. Uh, the conventional wisdom on that point is really that the IRGC and the Artesh or regular military uh, were always at, at loggerheads and the Artesh was trying to uh, professionalize, to uh, to prosecute the war in, in a more sort of rational manner. 
and that the IRGC was not interested in that, and therefore that there was uh, a tremendous amount of tension uh, between the two forces. Uh, the Revolutionary Guards described that relationship differently. Uh, they, they certainly acknowledged that there were differences in approach, uh, but on the whole, they described the relationship between the forces, again, as, as complementary rather than, than contradictory. And they, they argue that both those forces could bring uh, different things to the table in, in a manner not unsimilar to the relationship between faith and firepower. Uh, so even though the guards valued uh, weapons and military professionalism uh, for themselves, they also understand that they are the, the more revolutionary armed force and the Artesh was the, the more professional armed force, certainly it, in the 1980s when, when the IRGC was still becoming institutionalized. And so they recognized that the Artesh could bring uh, those skills and those weapons to the table and that they could be used together with uh, what was often the, the higher degree of commitment uh, in, uh, among the revolutionary guards. Uh, they describe the cooperation between the forces as increasing after the dismissal of the Islamic Republic's first president, Abul Hassan Bani Stadr. Uh, and they, the guards have a quite a negative view uh, of him, which isn't surprising to, to many. Uh, and they say that Bani Sadr tried to uh, sort of play the forces off of one another. And once he was removed from power, there were additional opportunities uh, for cooperation. And they, they note in particular that the operation to liberate the Iranian city of Gormshar in May 1982, uh, which had been under Iraqi occupation since uh, late 1980, uh, absolutely relied on the, the union uh, of the two forces working together. Uh, so they're critical uh, of the Artesh, they're also critical of themselves, uh, but they generally emphasize cooperation. Uh, when it comes to the political decision-making, uh, again, they there's a, a mix of uh, acceptance and critique. Uh, but the critique is not really what we what we often hear about. Uh, usually the the contention is that the guards were very frustrated with the political leadership and that they believe that the war should have gone on sort of indefinitely and that they should have been provided with the resources needed to do that. Uh, so while they are critical of some decisions, they also are very co uh, cognizant of the, the limitations that confronted Iran's war fighting capabilities. And they don't argue that the war should have gone on longer and that it could have succeeded more if the Revolutionary Guards were only given sort of this weapon or, or those resources. Uh, they they are disappointed for the lack of a better word for how the war turned out. Uh, and in that sense too, they view the war as, as unfinished because it didn't resolve conclusively. Uh, but they understand that it really did have to end, have to end and that, that Iran could not continue to pour uh, blood and treasure into a conflict that they uh, increasingly understood they were not going to be able to win. Uh, when it comes to the IRGC's history, uh, especially compared to other military organizations, uh, I did a lot of digging to try to understand if the IRGC 
was inspired by other military organizations in this project. If they looked at any other military's efforts to, to write their own history in this regard. Um, and I couldn't find uh, statements to that effect. Uh, so it generally is, is not dissimilar to, to how the American military writes its own history. Uh, the guards are very much interested in learning from the war to try to learn from their mistakes and try to improve uh, for their performance in the future. And then when it comes to the history itself, I think I, I was struck by how, how sophisticated it is. It's incredibly theoretical in places. Uh, and you can see the authors really turn over these issues that that all historians struggle with, uh, where they they raise questions of how what do we do with the mass of facts? Uh, we have so many documents on the war. How do we decide which ones to include? Uh, how do we understand war in general? How do we understand uh, this war in relation to theoretical considerations of war, for example. Uh, so it's quite developed uh, and was was very interesting for me to read. Thank you so much for that fascinating insight, Dr. Tracy Samuel. So our next question is two main events led to led the IRGC to become a major player in the Iran-Iraq war. One, Bani Sadr's removal to the crash of the 1981 Iranian Air Force C-130, in which many IRGC and Artesh top military commanders were killed. As a result of these two events, the IRGC, and specifically Mohsen Rezaei, became the main actors during the war. Do you have any other examples along the same line that were considered to be turning points? Do you think without these events, the IRGC could grow to become what it is today? Okay. So I, I would agree that those two events were, were turning points uh, for the IRGC. And they, they do describe in much more detail their prosecution of the war after those, those two events. Uh, prior to that, they described quite openly uh, that their attempts to, to fight the Iraqi invasion were, were not very successful. Uh, were not very organized. Uh, they cite numerous uh, examples of where they, they tried to stage operations and then failed. Uh, so I would certainly agree that those events are, are critical to allowing the IRGC to enter the war to the extent that they did. Uh, in addition to those, I would probably add the, uh, the operation to liberate Hormshar in May 1982. Uh, which, which I mentioned previously, uh, and which was an operation in which the, the command of the war uh, changed to an extent. Uh, and the guards describe how the, the different operational bases, as they call them, that were involved in planning and executing this operation uh, combined IRGC and regular military forces. Uh, which was as part of this recognition of the the value that the two forces could bring to the table and just the really the importance of cooperation between them in, in all levels and stages of planning uh, and so that was an operation that was one of iran's most successful operations if not its most successful uh, and it was was planned and and implemented uh through a joint irgc artesh effort 
Uh, so that's a, an, another turning point. Uh, the invasion of Iraq in July 1982 was, was another turning point, although one uh, that I think is viewed in hindsight as uh, demonstrating the limitations of Iran's military power and its ability to attain uh, war aims that, that ended up being too broad. And then finally would be the, uh, the establishment of the separate ground naval and air forces in the guards uh, before they had uh, they hadn't had those those different branches and the establishment of those different branches uh, is something that they see as as being uh, critical to allowing them to to take on greater rules and also to professionalize and institutionalize uh, and i won't venture to to answer the question of, of if the guards would have been able to do everything that they they would have uh, had it not been for Bonnie Sauter's removal and the the plane crash that was mentioned. Uh, certainly, those contributed. So the the course of history would have been different. Uh, but I I won't uh, venture a guess as to exactly how that would have turned. Great, thank you for that insight. Uh, the next question. In late 2018, Mohsen Rezaei tweeted that the 1986 Karbala 4 operation was meant to be a diversion for Karbala 5, but General Soleimani later stated that it was not a military deception. From your research, what did you understand about the goal of Karbala 4, and did you see any incidents similar to the, the Karbala 4 and 5? there were certainly deceptive operations uh that was something that the the guards uh, sort of struggled with a lot and that they discuss in these texts uh that they describe the the discordance in in uh, material between iran and iraq uh, especially after the iranian invasion uh, of iraq and they they try to figure out ways for Iran to make the most of its material disadvantage. And one of the ways that they, they decided to do that was by staging uh, diversionary operations, uh, by trying to uh, use the length of the border uh, that separates Iran and Iraq uh, to stage numerous operations on, on multiple points at the same time in order to try to confuse the Iraqi forces and make them unaware of, of when the next major operation was, was going to be. Um, and Karbala 5 was, was most certainly the, the major operation, uh, much more so than, than Karbala 4. Uh, and, and that is, is one that the, the guards sort of discuss it at greater length and, and view as being significant in allowing Iran to shift the, the political dynamics of the war. Uh, so Iran, one of the main reasons that, that Iran refused to end the war before it did, uh, was that it argued that Iraq had not been recognized as the aggressor in the war, that it had not agreed to uh, re-implement the treaty governing the, the border between the countries that Saddam Hussein had ripped up on television prior to the war, uh, that he had not agreed to pay reparations, and that there was no international political pressure for any of those things to happen. And so for much of the war, the idea on the part of Iranian forces was that if they could stage one 
major or decisive operation, uh, that they could change that, that calculation on the part of the, the international community and the UN specifically. Uh, that is, they were not very successful in, in that endeavor, but they view Karbala 5 as the closest thing to that. Um, so I, I think that, that answers most of the question. Yes, thank you. That's incredibly interesting. Our next question is, do you see similar, did you see similarities between the acceptance of Security Council Resolution 598 and the acceptance of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action? Great question. Yeah, so uh, UN Security Council Resolution 598 is the uh, resolution that that established the, the ceasefire. Uh, it was passed in 1987, but it came into force uh, in the end of August uh, after Iran accepted it uh, in July 1988. So it came into force August 1988. Uh, and then there was uh, a, a UN Security Council resolution uh, that was passed as part of the Iran nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. Uh, and in uh, an article that uh, that was mentioned, I think, and that was co-authored uh, with Ariane Tabatabai uh, and published in International Security, uh, we we explore these exact links between the war and the JCPOA. And one of the things that we argued was that the UN taking action as part of the JCPOA uh, and of of uh, giving recognition to the, the various elements of the nuclear deal was incredibly significant for Iran because Iran had built up such a level of distrust of the UN over the course of the war and because of the war. And so having the UN give its, its stamp of approval to the JCPOA and of backing this up uh, was seen as something that was very significant in, in changing what Iranian leaders viewed to be uh, its unfair, their unfair treatment uh, by the UN. And there, there are examples of uh, Foreign Minister Zarif, then Foreign Minister Zarif, uh, discussing those, those parallels explicitly, uh, that, that in the, the resolution the UN took uh, as part of the JCPOA, uh, that it helped correct the uh, the mistakes that it, it had made during the Iran-Iraq war. Thank you so much for that insight. The next question is, is Iran currently taking care of the veterans of the Iran-Iraq war? Great question. Not as much as it should be. Um, there are uh, many thousands and thousands of, of veterans of this war. Uh, and as I, I mentioned, someone in passing, the war was incredibly uh, brutal. Uh, there was trench warfare, there was uh, extensive use of chemical weapons, especially by Iraq, uh, which has left Iranians who fought in this war uh, with, with both physical and, and psychological injuries that will they may never uh, overcome. Uh, and Iran, uh, both the IRGC and the, the governments or more broadly, uh, does really do a lot to sort of commemorate this war and to describe it as being something that is is so very significant, but they they often fail to to take care of of the veterans in in light of of how important they deem the war to be, uh, which is 
shameful uh, and disappointing and uh, is also not something that sort of in the histories of the war, I saw the guards discuss uh, explicitly, but but it is something that that should be recognized as, as an area where Iran has fallen short in, in taking care of these these veterans who suffer. Great, thank you. What was the role of clerics in commanding the war? Did that role diminish over time as the war progressed? So the guards discuss, they don't discuss the role of clerics as, as um, really commanding the war. I mean, there were figures like Rafsanjani, uh, who, who was a cleric, but who was also a, a political leader. Uh, and he had a, a very important role in, in the command of the war. So to the extent that there were clerics who were also uh, political leaders, certainly they were there. Uh, but the, the clerics are not people who, who were not political or military leaders at the time, clerics who were uh, more exclusively uh, clerics. Uh, they, they were not on the field sort of commanding people. Um, so they don't really describe that as, as something that was part of Iran's uh, war strategy. And they were also there uh, initially to for part of this ideological training, uh, especially on the part of the Artesh, uh, and to, to drive home this sort of ideology that, that was important to Iran in this post-revolutionary era, uh, and that was also important in the view of the guards to uh, prosecuting the war more effectively. Uh, it certainly wasn't uh, meaningful to, to everyone, uh, but the, the commitments to the revolution and to the nation uh, that, that was part of this war, at least for, for the first couple of years, was something that helped Iran prosecute the war effectively. Thank you. Our next question. I believe the United States supported Iraq in the war after years of supporting the Shah before the revolution. How much of the rhetoric of the IRGC account if any, was directed at the United States? So I, I, I wouldn't say that sort of the rhetoric was directed at the United States, but they're very uh, uh, critical and, and aware of the, the US role in, in the war, uh, that they argue that the intervention of, of outside powers, uh, including but not limited to the United States, was something that was one of the most important factors in preventing Iran from having more success than it did. Uh, that because much of the Arab world and uh, the United States and, and other powers uh, were supporting Iraq financially, uh, with intelligence, uh, with weapons, uh, by turning a blind eye to its use of chemical weapons, and then at the same time, it imposed an arms embargo on Iran, uh, was preventing Iran from importing uh, things that, that Iranian leaders argue would have just provided them with, with basic safety for their population. Uh, that is seen as, as something that the United States uh, did with, with terrible consequences in their view, and is something that had a, a significant impact on, on the course of the war. And it's also something that, that the Revolutionary Guards and other leaders today uh, view as an ongoing source of distrust between Iran and the United States. And, and one that I think many in the United States don't 
uh, are, are not as, as aware of. I think many people in the United States know that there's this distrust uh, between the two countries and that it, it stemmed uh, from the, the 1953 coup uh, and from the, the hostage crisis, and that is certainly true. But the, the guards and other Iranian leaders, this is something that sort of goes across the, the political spectrum, uh, often point to the US role in the Iran-Iraq war as being a really significant source of distrust uh, for them and as something that uh, prevents Iranian leaders from, from changing that position, from, from trusting the United States uh, more than they do. Uh, there were direct naval encounters between Iranian forces and American forces in the Persian Gulf. Uh, so there, this was a, a war in which the United States was uh, actually militarily involved. And the, the event that is often seen as pushing Iran to finally accept that it could not continue to fight the war uh, was the shooting down of an, of an Iranian passenger airplane by the United States, uh, purportedly mistakenly. Uh, the United States argued that it, it did not know that this was a, a civilian airliner. Uh, but this uh, it was, and it killed all 290 passengers on board. And that really symbolizes for Iranians the, their inability to, uh, to suffer the, the losses of the war any further. So the United States plays very uh, prominently in this history uh, and, and in the, the present resonances of this history. Mm, fascinating. Thank you. The next question. Evidence shows that MEK or Mojahedin Khalq helped Iraq during the war. On the other hand, while many don't talk about it, Iraqis, including Badr, were helping the Iranian side. There is also some evidence that suggests that other foreigners, including Afghans, at the time organized by the current commander of the IRGC Quds Force and Lebanese, were also fighting on Iran's side. What is your assessment of? about the role of foreign fighters and how their relationship with the IRGC continued after the war. Okay, so there, there's a few, I haven't looked at all of those cases, so I'll discuss the, the ones that, that I did. Uh, when it comes to the Mojada Hadine Halk, the, the MEK, uh, they, the guards are, are highly, highly critical of this organization, which is really not surprising. Uh, this is one of the sort of most reviled institutions among uh, revolutionary leaders and, and others, uh, in part because the, the MEK uh, did uh, help uh, Iraq in, in the war. And then also in the very final stages of the war, uh, helped lead an invasion back into Iran. So the guards are highly critical uh, of them, uh, of this organization, the MEK. Uh, and and do argue that they were able to assist Iraq's war effort in in material ways. Uh, the other foreign forces that that they discuss, uh, at least in the sources that that I have looked at, uh, is the role of Kurdish fighters. Uh, and this is a, a interesting dynamic uh, that you know reflects sort of the uh, the status of of the Kurdish people in the Middle East uh, more broadly, uh, which is that both. Iraq and Iran have sizable Kurdish populations uh, that sort of uh, border one another, so in, in the north of the countries. 
And the guards describe how before the war, uh, Iraqis helped uh, go, uh, the, the Kurds in uh, Northwestern Iran uh, fight, the fight the revolution uh, and also how that was going on sort of in the war itself. And they talk about how Iranian forces worked with Iraqi Kurds to try to prosecute the war in Iraq. So, so both sides are working with the opposite sides Kurdish population to try to weaken the other from within. Um, of course, that had one of the, the most significant events of the war is the, uh, the gassing of, of Halabja by Saddam Hussein. Uh, late in the war in 1988, uh, this uh, you know mass atrocity of of this uh, Kurdish uh, village uh, in northern Iraq uh, that that Saddam Hussein attacked with with chemical gas, uh, which the guards also do describe uh, as something that forced them to acknowledge that the war had to to end. Uh, so there's that dynamic as well, and then they discuss a bit the role of. Uh, Iraq working with the Arab population in southwest Iran to try to prosecute the war and to try to destabilize Iran uh, prior to the outbreak of, of the war. And then they discuss to a certain extent their involvement with certain uh, Arab Shi forces in, in Iraq. Uh, but I haven't uh, I haven't seen too much about the the Afghanis in, in that. Um, you know, much of the war was fought on the on the western border, right? The border between Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan is is of course on the the other side, so a bit further removed. Thank you so much. We have uh, two related questions next. Who is the general audience that the guards had in mind when assembling these documents? And a researcher's reliance on a certain school of thought, let alone publication house could risk failure to understand the correct context. The IRGC is accused of using its, quote, official war publications to rewrite history. How did you deal with this dilemma? Okay, uh, so I'll take the second one first. Uh, how I dealt with that was with utmost care and, and caution, uh, because of course I'm I'm very much aware of, of the potential uh, pitfalls of relying on on a single uh, body of sources, um, and I what I did was that I I scrupulously uh, compared the IRGC sources to other sources and particularly to uh, news accounts uh, of of the war uh, because I was I tried to to be as skeptical as as I could. Uh, of these sources to to identify anywhere uh, where they were uh, were false or where they were untruthful or where they were exaggerating, um, and I discuss in the book the instances of that that I that I did find, uh, but on the whole, through this this rigorous comparative process that that I I underwent, uh, I did not find that they're they're in the business of of fabricating the the history uh, these sources are incredibly well documented um, there are footnotes that go on for pages uh, there are uh, copies of, of documents themselves um, and so of course the the selection of material is is itself a a choice uh, and the the one and one that the guards are are in charge of uh, but they 
in these sources, this is not a, and what we may expect, this is not a sort of a celebratory history of Iran did so great in the war, Iran won the war, the Revolutionary Guards uh, outperformed uh, the, the Artesh and, and all expectations. It's quite a sober assessment. Uh, and so I think in, in that vein too, it's, it's important to distinguish between uh, the rhetoric again and sort of written history. Uh, when guards are are talking about the the war itself, right? That's distinct from the the work of of recording and publishing the history. They're certainly connected, uh, but the when they're speaking to the media or uh, in in news articles, uh, the accounts are going to be much more simplistic uh, than they are in in the sources. Um, and the sources are are complex and are are self-critical, which I I think makes sense because it would be counterproductive for the guards to just say we did great uh, that this war was highly successful uh, and we did everything right. Uh, a because that's so patently not true, and they it would be damaging to their credibility to say that they did everything right when they so clearly didn't, and because it wouldn't help them be more effective in the future. Uh, and they state explicitly that they're one of the reasons why they're writing this history is in order to learn from the war, in order to, to fight wars and to defend the country uh, more uh, in, in a better way than they did during the war. Uh, so it was with this, this critical eye with uh, checking different sources uh, that that I ensured that I wasn't uh, sort of conveying what the guards wrote as the definitive, a hundred percent accurate, a hundred percent accepted history of the war. Um, and what I also want to say when it comes to that question is that uh, in in deciding on the particular approach I took, I was really guided by the fact that no one had looked at these sources in any comprehensive manner. One or two had been cited here and there, uh, but no one had, had taken these sources, taken this project as a whole and tried to understand what it was. Uh, and so my goal with, with this project was, was to understand the guards history first, to, to see what it was. Uh, so I'm, I'm careful not to uh, to suggest that this is the history of the Iran-Iraq war and to, to make frame my arguments in terms of this being the Revolutionary Guards history of, of the Iran-Iraq war. Um, and I think uh, that, that we were able to, to learn a lot from that, to, to understand a lot about the guards uh, that, that would not have been possible if I had tried to, to undertake a, a more extensive, more comparative approach, which would certainly be useful uh, but that was really well beyond the scope of, of a single dissertation or a single book. When it comes to the audience, uh, the, these are mostly for Iranian researchers. Uh, and I say that because they're in Persian. Uh, so they're, they're written for Iranians or for people who can speak Persian. And many of them are not accessible. There these, many of them are, are tough, books they're they're theoretical they're large they're not something that anyone would just pick up for a casual read um and they say that explicitly that that, that these are attended for for researchers uh who are interested in the war there are other sets of publications that 
are, are shorter and uh, more digestible uh, that are intended to try to reach a, a wider audience. Uh, that's especially true of uh, certain of the series. So there's these different series of atlases uh, that have a lot of maps and images uh, and things like that. And those are intended to be used uh, both for researchers, but also for people who uh, are visiting the, the war fronts in Western Iran. And there are uh, sort of state-sponsored and uh, other trips to, to the war fronts to, to see different sites of, of battles. And so these one set of atlases is intended to be used to, to facilitate those visits. There's also a more recent series of oral histories uh, where some of the important commanders of, of the war are working with IRGC researchers to, uh, to uh, narrate their particular uh, experiences in the war. And I think some of the hope is that some of those commanders who are, who are more uh, well-known, uh, Rezaei, Soleimani, Safavi, uh, those sorts of figures, uh, that perhaps that will, Jafari uh, uh, as well, uh, that will attract some some additional interest in this. Interesting. Thank you. So thank you so much for your time. We have two final questions before we wrap up the event. The first, did you find affirmation that the U.S. provided chemical weapons to Iraq? So this was not something that I looked at uh, specifically, but this is something that is uh, available in in English language press uh, that that the the United States was, uh, you know, in, involved in in this, uh, but it's not something that I would seek to verify through the, the IRGC sources. Great, thank you. And so the final question, and my my favorite question, what most surprised you during your research? What most surprised me? Lots of things. Um, I think, as a as a historian, was to to see the the Revolutionary Guards as as historians, uh, as as people who were uh, very explicitly struggling with with questions that any historian is is familiar with uh that how do you put together a narrative from all of this information how do you ensure impartiality uh, how do you integrate uh theoretical approaches to war and security and revolution in understanding a specific case uh, how do we understand war and why wars occur and why people fight in wars uh, those sorts of questions to to see them write about those sorts of issues in these publications uh, as I was thinking about them myself, uh, I think was was surprising and, and intriguing for me. We hope you enjoyed the spotlighting an author event with Dr. Annie Tracy Samuel. If you want to learn even more, you can check out the Iran 1400 project on YouTube. There you can watch the video with Annie Tracy Samuel's PowerPoint included. Also, please do subscribe to this podcast so that you can be notified of upcoming episodes. And lastly, please check out the Iran 1400 Project on all social medias, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. 
and you can also check out the website iran1400.org there you can find wonderful content in both english and farsi from a variety of topics related to iran during the last century thanks again for listening